Mason and Sophia both graduated high school, and uh, they did so with honors, both of them. Sophia graduated a year early (laughs) with honors, so that was quite an accomplishment, and she's just glad to have it over with. (laughs) But uh, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we've been talking about the practice of spiritual gifts in the church, and we've been discussing how the gift of prophecy is much more important than the gift and the use of tongues, the biblical use of tongues in the Bible. And we have to be reminded that the church of Corinth uh, was filled both with Jews and Gentiles. It was a mixed church, but it was also a carnal church. It was uh, not very spiritual in the way it practiced, and we've seen that as we've gone through this book. Over and over again, Paul has to rebuke them, correct them, and he gets to this section here in chapter 14, and he really dials in on one issue they had, and that was the wrong use of the gift of languages or the gift of tongues as we know it, but also the idea that they brought in a uh, counterfeit gift that is really practiced in pagan religions. And it was this ecstatic utterance that they said they could somehow communicate to their God in a language that nobody else could understand. And we discussed how in the text, whenever you see the word tongue in its singular form, it's referring to that counterfeit gift. Because when it's Referring to languages, plural, it's referring to the legitimate gift. And there was a legitimate gift in the New Testament that God gave individuals to be able to speak a language they did not know to people who spoke that language. But with that being said, whenever it was practiced, it was always to be practiced with an interpreter if it was in a mixed crowd because edification of the whole body is more important than just your own edification. And unfortunately, the Corinthians didn't understand that, and so they got so caught up in the use of the real use of languages, as well as this pagan practice of gibberish, they brought it into the church and they combined them both, and they did it so that people would look at them and say, wow, how spiritual they are. They can talk in a language that nobody even understands to a god uh, directly. And they were really exalting themselves, and it, it... fulfilled something in their flesh, and Paul had to correct them. And so we've been going through this, and we looked at verses 1 to 19 last time, uh, last couple weeks, and we talked about the position of the gift of tongues, that it's secondary to that of prophecy. Prophecy is someone standing up and proclaiming the word of God. That's what the word prophecy means. And then today we're going to be looking at the purpose of the gift of tongues, and then next week we'll be looking at the procedure of how this gift is to be used in the church. Because Paul had to go over that because they were misusing it. And so today we're going to be looking at the purpose of the gift of tongues. So I'd ask you to stand in honor of God's word as I read um, from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning in verse 20. Beginning in verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then 
they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, this is very important, look at this verse, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Verse 23, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or an unbeliever enters, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray you bless it to our hearts and our minds as we look at it this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we talked about prophecy edifying the entire congregation because tongues are unintelligible. Even the real gift of tongues is unintelligible to the person who doesn't speak that language. And so it's limited in its use. And what was happening in the Corinthian church in verses 13 to 19, he talks about the effects of tongues is this emotional high that they got rather than something intellectual or, or mental. And pretty much this is what's going on in the modern-day charismatic movement today. We ended our last message. We said, well, how do we respond to these principles that we've been learning? And I pointed out eight things, and they were basically exalt the proclamation and teaching of God's word. We want to do that whenever we can as the body of Christ. When we come together for a Bible study, we should open up the Bible and teach the Bible. Um, Secondly, we come together to hear and understand God's word. Thirdly, we use spiritual gifts to build one another up. We don't use it to build ourselves up. We should never seek, fourthly, a selfish spiritual experience that just feeds our flesh. And we should never seek an emotional experience experience, but we should seek knowledge. We should seek to understand what God's Word says. Sixthly, we said we have to watch out for Satan's counterfeits, and there are many, (laughs) not just in this area, but in a lot of areas. And then seventhly, we said do all things with a clear mind that is open to God's truth. We just want to know what God's Word says. I don't want to have to come to God's Word and say, well, I experienced this, so I'm going to set this aside. No. We have to bring everything into subjection to God's word. And then lastly, we said we need to seek the true work of the Holy Spirit. See, unfortunately, today in the church, there are those who are over here, and it's all about the Holy Spirit, and it's all about speaking in tongues, and it's all about the gifts, and it's very chaotic in their worship time a lot of times. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, It's very emotional. Nothing wrong with emotions. But we also have to deal with the intellect. And unfortunately, you have that side, right? And then you have other people that just want to be right and be holy, and they discount the Holy Spirit altogether. (laughs) That's just as wrong. And we don't want to be a church that's either extreme. We want to recognize the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, but we also want to subject that work to God's spoken and written word. And so that's what we're, we're looking at this morning. We're looking at the purpose of the gift of tongues. What was the purpose? Well, it, it tells us it was a sign. That's why God gave this gift. And this is very, very important. 
as we begin to look at this. Um, there's a lot of different purposes that people suggest for the gift of tongues today in the church. Some people say, the modern-day charismatic movement would say, that the gift of tongues is used for personal edification and for personal devotion. It kind of takes you to a different realm. This is what they would say. And um, unfortunately, there's no evidence of that in the Bible anywhere. It doesn't tell us to do that anywhere. Um, But that will tell us that the primary purpose of the gift of tongues is for personal edification and devotion. If you question what I'm saying, all you have to do is read some of the charismatic commentaries and scholars. One, Donald Gee, said this, The revealed purpose of the gift of tongues are chiefly devotional. And we do well to emphasize that fact. That's what he's saying from his perspective. Another scholar said this, Larry Christensen, he said, one speaks in tongues for the most part in his private devotions. This is by far its most important use and value. Now, unfortunately, these are very learned men, but they're wrong. There's no verse that they could point to when you understand the text that tells us that we should do this for our own devotional life or our own personal edification. Um, in the first 19 verses of chapter 14, by the way, we just, we just went over, okay, he actually rebukes the Corinthians for their selfish use of this gift of tongues, the legitimate gift of tongues. And when he, he says in verse 2 for, of chapter 14, 1 Corinthians, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. Okay, or to a God, speaking, once again, of the, the counterfeit gift there. That's what they're saying when they speak in these languages in the Corinthian church. They were saying, well, we're speaking to our own God. Um, it's this gibberish, and there's only one kind of gibberish. There's not many. That's why it's singular. And so they had misused this, this gift, but they also misused the, the real gift as well. Um, in verse 4 of chapter 14, he says, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. In other words, he exalts himself. We're not told to ever do that. Um, it's, it's wrong. It's selfish to come to church and say, well, the only reason I'm here is so that I can be built up. I want to be edified myself. I don't care about anybody else. That's what was going on in the Corinthian church. The primary purpose for us to come together is, yes, to be edified through the teaching of God's word. That's what prophecy is all about. Okay, But also to what? To serve. To serve one another in the love of Christ. If you just come to get something each week, you're coming with the wrong purpose. We're not here just to warm a seat. But we're here to serve one another. Maybe someone needs a, a comforting word or a handshake or, a, God forbid, a hug. You know, I mean, we've gotten away from all that, right? I mean, be smart about it, but, you know, the body of Christ needs that. And so what Paul is saying here is, you know what, you're coming together and you're, you're speaking this gibberish for the purpose of building yourselves up. But the truth of the matter, in verse 14, he says, you're, look at what he says, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. In other words, it doesn't do anything for the intellect to practice this 
gift. As a matter of fact, it's, it's, it's so unfruitful that down in verse 16, look at what it says. Even those who say, if they come in as an outsider and someone says amen, they're not even going to know when to say amen because you're, you're speaking in a language that nobody else can understand. So he covers both the, the counterfeit gift as well as the true gift. It would be just as wrong for someone in a church to stand up and actually use the legitimate gift of tongues in the Corinthian church if there wasn't an interpreter there. Why? Because the only person that could understand what they were saying was the person that spoke that language, and everybody else would be left in the dark. And that's just wrong on on every side, according to Paul. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 19, I'd rather speak five words (laughs) in a language that you can understand rather than 10,000 words in a foreign language. So he's really downplaying this gift all along. And he compares it to prophecy continuous, continuously. But we have to understand, even the legitimate gift of tongues was never intended for personal edification or personal devotion. It can't do that because you're not going to understand what they are saying unless you know that language. So the mind is unfruitful. Um, and some people say, well, it's a, it's a self-edifying prayer language. I use it in my prayer closet at home. Tell me a verse in the Bible that, points, that will point you to the idea of, of praying in tongues for a matter of a, a devotion or a prayer. A matter of fact, Jesus himself gave us the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6. And there wasn't any ecstatic gibberish there or any... Um, Language known other than what he could communicate clearly to the people that listened to him. Um, other times people will say, well, it's just when I speak in tongues, I'm just really praising God. And aren't we called to praise God? Isn't that the, the ultimate thing when we can praise God? Well, if gift is the ultimate, or if tongues is the ultimate expression of praising God, what are we going to be doing in heaven? We're going to be praising God. But guess what? What does the Bible say will happen to tongues? Tongues will cease. So there's not going to be any tongues in heaven. And you would think if God made tongues as the only way that we could really praise God deeper in the spirit, that he would allow it to happen in heaven and it wouldn't cause something that would be so praise-honoring to God to cease. But we've covered where he says it will cease, and we believe it ceased with the apostolic error. Well, secondly, they say not only for personal devotion and edification, but they also say for evangelism. Some people say, well, you know, the gift of of tongues, the legitimate gift in the New Testament, was given for evangelism. It gave the opportunity for somebody to preach the gospel to somebody in a language, um, even though they didn't know the language. Um, That's not really, and they point to the book of Acts, don't they? They said, well, that's what happened in the book of Acts. You know, they, they were all gathered there, and the, the, the apostles stood up, and they began to speak in their languages, which is true. And everybody was confounded. They're saying, how are these simple Galilean men speaking our language when they don't even know it, right? And what did it do? It got their attention. But you have to stop, and you have to ask, on Acts, in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the disciples spoke in tongues, and everybody in the crowd heard them speak in their own language... Look at what they said. What did they say? Did they preach the gospel to them? It tells us in Acts chapter 2, verse 11. 
It says, they what? They heard them speaking the mighty works of God. That's what the disciples were telling them in their own language. They weren't preaching the gospel. They were telling them the mighty works of God. In other words, they were going over all the great historical events that God had done in the Old Testament. Why? Because the group they were speaking to were primarily Jews. They were unbelieving Jews. And so the disciples, and in order to get their attention, stood up and God gave them the ability to speak in a language they did not know so that these unbelieving Jews could hear the mighty works of God. That would get any Jew's attention. And that's exactly what happened. They drew a crowd, the attention of the Jewish crowd. And then what happens in verses, we're not going to read it this morning, we don't have time, but verses 14 to 40, what does Acts chapter 2 tell us? That's where Peter stands up after the disciples use the gift of tongues to kind of draw the crowd and tell all these unbelieving Jews of the mighty works that God have done has done in the past, now they're, they're there, they're waiting with bated breath, and what does Peter do? He gets, and he stands up, and he speaks in a language that is common to all, the gospel. So if anything, you could say the legitimate gift of tongues in the New Testament was not even used for evangelism. It was kind of used as a pre-evangelism thing, something to draw. You know, when you go out and you, you preach on the streets, and there's some people that are very gifted at this, and they'll go out and they'll set up a whiteboard. And they're very artistic and they'll start to draw things on the whiteboard. And people will stop and they're like, wow, this is pretty cool. And pretty soon they have 20, 25 people standing there. And they draw a picture of the gospel. And then they begin to explain to them the gospel. Okay? And that's kind of what the gift of tongues was used. It gathered the crowd so that the gospel could be preached. So it's not for personal edification. It wasn't even really for evangelism. Thirdly, they say, well, the gift of tongues, it's proof that you were baptized by the Holy Spirit. I hear someone on the TV, I listen to them because I like their music every week, but inevitably, every week, they say, well, we believe, you know, uh, if you're saved and you've been baptized by the Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues, if you don't speak in tongues in their mind, guess what? You're not saved. That's what they're saying. And we looked at 1 Corinthians 12 before, and we talked about the, the, the erroneous view that the gift of tongues is, a, is proof of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, in, in chapter 12, verse 13, Paul writes there in 1 Corinthians, For by one Spirit we were all baptized. By one Spirit we were all baptized. How many were baptized? All. Now, if you go all the way down to verse 30, jump from verse 13 of chapter 12 down to verse 30, what does Paul say? Do we all possess gifts of healing? Do we all speak with tongues? Do we all interpret? The answer in the original language, the construction, it, it kind of creates the answer no. It anticipates a negative answer. And so it would be hard-pressed to hold that, well, you know what, unless you speak in tongues, you haven't been baptized by the Spirit. Because if you haven't been baptized by the Spirit, guess what? You're not saved. All right? And, and so to say that everyone, every believer must speak with this gift of tongues is just flatly wrong. And then even over in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, after Peter preached... He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Or 
that gets, that gets kind of sticky there because people say, oh, baptism takes away our sins. No. No, it doesn't. Water baptism does not take away our sins. Spiritual baptism takes away our sins. When we come to Christ, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. And then water baptism is simply an outward sign of an inward change. It's just you giving a testimony that, you know what? God has changed my heart, and I want to follow him because he said to follow him through the waters of baptism. Um, It couldn't be for the forgiveness of sins because Jesus himself was baptized and he had no sin. So because of this is a better rendering. Um, Because you've been forgiven of your sins, that's why you get baptized. And then he says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's in verse 38. In verse 41, it tells us that 3,000 people responded to Peter's message that day. 3,000 came to Christ. And yet, you look at the text, how many of them spoke in tongues after they received this gift of the Holy Spirit, after they were saved? The Bible says, doesn't say anything about speaking in tongues. It doesn't mention it at all. And I guarantee you, if you had 3,000 people speaking in tongues after they received the gift of the Spirit, the Bible would include that. It's not there. Or in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, Luke's writing here, and he says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Some charismatics say, well, it's a sign of you being filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not what happens. As it continues, that verse, it says, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak or prophesy the word of God with boldness. doesn't say they spoke in tongues. So in Corinthians chapter 12, we're all baptized by the Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, people received the Spirit. In Acts chapter 4, people were filled by the Spirit. But in each case, there's no accompanying phenomenon of anyone speaking in tongues. So the idea that tongues and the baptism of the Holy Spirit go together is just something somebody made up somewhere. Because it's not in Scripture anywhere. Um, So you say, well, if it's not... If, if speaking in tongues isn't the sign of the Spirit's baptism, if it's, if it's not for proclaiming the gospel or evangelism, if it's not for personal devotion, well, then what is it for? Why would God give this gift? Well, this is what he covers in our text this morning in verse 20. He states the purpose for the gift of tongues. Paul does. He has to remind them. And he says there, brothers, notice he starts out in verse 20, brothers, you know, that's like when someone comes up to you and says, hey, you know what, I, I really love you, brother, but <laughs> you know what's coming, right? There's going to be a rebuke, all right? They're, they're kind of affirming their affection for you, but it's going to be followed by maybe some hard words of correction, and that's what Paul is doing here. Brothers, he says, do not be children. Literally, it says, stop being children. Padia is the word in the Greek. Stop being children in your thinking, So they were very immature in their thinking, in their intellect. And then he says, be infants, nathios, in in evil. It's a different word. It's not the same word as children in the beginning of the verse. It's a different word. So he's making a distinguishment there. What does he mean by this? Um, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil 
but in your thinking be mature. Now, this is a strong rebuke, a strong indictment by Paul. That's why he starts off with brothers. But he talks about their lack of understanding. He says there that the Corinthians are children in their thinking. You know, if I came up to you and said, you know, you're thinking like a child. You wouldn't go, gee, thanks. I really appreciate that. That's a compliment. No. You would say, wow, that's kind of an insult. All right? In other words, what he's telling them is they hadn't really grown up spiritually. They're spiritually immature. And this isn't the only place he says this. He's been saying it through the entire book. He wants them to grow up spiritually to the point where they can understand solid doctrine. You need to understand what the text says before you can apply the text. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul says this, so that you may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. That's Ephesians 4.14. Paul says we shouldn't be like that. We shouldn't be like children. We shouldn't be following every new fad that comes out, every new Christian book that comes out. And unfortunately, the church has grown to do that. You know, somebody writes a book, and it's a popular book. It's like, wow, okay, let's do that. It it doesn't matter whether it's theologically incorrect, because people don't think in theological terms today. I've talked to pastors of churches that tell me we don't teach theology because theology is divisive. It's like, wait a minute, what do you teach? You're a church. Theology is basically the study of God, right? I mean, that's what it is. And we've seen what they teach. You know, how to have a happy marriage, how to have a healthy amount of money in your wallet. They don't teach biblical principles. They don't teach theology. They don't teach people how to understand the Bible. They don't use their minds. And that's what he says in verse 14. He implies that their minds were unfruitful. They weren't thinking through things right, correctly, with biblical principles. Now, in the modern-day charismatic movement, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. It's, it's not really their fault. These are the teachers that are responsible that, you know, they, they put this stuff out there, and people tend to flock to it, unfortunately, and they don't question it. So the Corinthians were children in their understanding rather than mature men with minds that grasp the truth. But he also says something weird here. He talks about their love of evil. He, he, he kind of says, be infants in evil. I mean, what does he mean by that? Well, if you think about a little infant, a little baby. I've never heard someone who's holding a little baby and someone comes up and so, oh, your little baby looks so evil. I've never heard anybody say that. Why? Because a baby's innocent, right? A baby has, it's, there's no evilness there. There's no malice toward anybody. They just feed me and I'm happy. You know, change my diaper, I'm happy. They're full of love, gentleness, kindness, tenderness, care, sensitivity. Yeah, they grow into be a pill eventually, but, you know, that's, we all do that. And, and what he says is, be like a little baby when it comes to evil. See, because he's talking to a church that was doing just the opposite. 
They were very immature in their thinking, but they were very, they were very uh, mature in their practicing of evil. <laughs> they were doing all kinds of things wrong. And, and what Paul is saying is, why would you treat each other like that within the church of Christ? Why don't you be like little infants when it comes to the way you act toward one another? And be mature in your thinking instead of being infants in your thinking and mature in evil. Because their selfish exercise of these spiritual gifts for the purpose of building themselves up for self-edification, what were they doing? They were focusing on themselves. And guess what you do when you focus on yourself? You forget about everybody else. That's, that is no place in the church of Christ. Um, there was no room for any real teaching of the word of God because the total confusion and chaos that existed in their worship wouldn't allow it. I mean, when you walked into one of their services in the Corinthian church, it was like just craziness. Everybody going off and speaking and doing different things, and they had all kinds of horrible things going on. Not only couldn't the members of the church get anything out of the service, but people who visited their congregation, he goes on to say, was just thought they were nuts, thought they were mad. And so it really boils down to the Corinthian church preferring an emotional experience over an intellectual one. I pray that when you come to church, that you come with your mind tuned in and attentive. You want to be taught. You don't want to be entertained. Um, If you do, you're going to have to look for a different church because we're just not about that here. You know, we want to teach you the word of God because we believe the word of God contains everything that we need. And so we want you to understand what it says, who it was written to, why it was written, what were the circumstances it was written. And so he says, stop being children, treating people unkindly, and start thinking like adults. That's really what he's saying here. But then in verse 21... He goes into the purpose. He says, in the law, it is written by people of strange tongues and the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. Who is this people? Israel, the Jews. That's who he's speaking to here. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for who? But for unbelievers. If you don't learn anything else about our time speaking about this gift of tongues, learn this. Learn this. Tongues are not a sign for believers. They're a sign for unbelievers. That statement alone is basically the focus of everything Paul says in chapter 14. If you can walk away understanding that, that can clear up a a ton of stuff. When it comes to this gift. Because there's a lot of controversy surrounding these gifts. I understand that. But you know what? There's no controversy of what Paul says here. He says very clearly. Tongues. The biblical use of languages. Are a sign not for believers. But for unbelievers. All he needs to do is deal. All you need to do is deal with the reality of that statement. And you'll understand that tongues are 
a sign for those who do not believe. And so what is the purpose of tongues? It's basically threefold. We can go through them now. First of all, cursing. It's a sign of cursing. You say, really? Where do you get that? Well, look at verse 21 again. He says, in the law. What does the law refer to? The, The Pentateuch or the entire Old Testament, as may be the case. He says, it is written... This is, this is quoting, if you turn back to Isaiah chapter 28, you see this language found there. So Paul begins to quote to the Jew, Jew, Jewish audience a prophet from the Old Testament out of chapter 28, the prophet Isaiah. He says, in the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. Who is this people? In the Old Testament, in Isaiah, when he said this people, he's referring to Israel. Paul is quoting this verse. And even to them, uh, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And so having started that Old Testament proclamation of Israel to, uh, of Isaiah to Israel, Paul applies it to the time of the Corinthian church. And in verse 22, he tells them that if, if, If tongues were a sign during the time of Isaiah, they will be a sign today. And he says they're a sign not to believers, but to unbelievers. Um, What's his conclusion here? Tongues are not for believing people. (laughs) It's not a sign for believing people. They are for unbelieving people. What unbelieving people? Israel. It's specifically a sign to unbelieving Israel. We see this in the Old Testament. If you look at Isaiah 28, verses 7 to 12, we find ourselves in the southern kingdom of Judah during the reign of King Hezekiah here. It's around 705 B.C. And in 722 B.C., 17 years earlier, remember the northern kingdom of Israel had been taken and destroyed by the Assyrians as a judgment of God on Israel's unbelief and apostasy. Those of you who have been out on Wednesday nights, we've gone through the book of Judges, and we see this pattern. You know, um, Israel does what's evil in the sight of the Lord. God rebukes them. They repent. They ask for God's forgiveness. God forgives them. And, and what happens? The whole cycle starts over and over again. Unless we be too quick to condemn Israel and their unbelief, this happens in the lives of Christians all the time. Right? I mean, we, we, can, we know what to do is right and what to do is wrong, and, and sometimes we go do what is wrong. And then what do we have to do? We feel remorse. We feel uh, sorry for our sin. And we go to the Lord, we, we thank him for his forgiveness in Christ, and, and we start over fresh the next day. All right? So that's, that's just part of a, a believer's life. But here, they were taken by the Assyrians back in 722 as a judgment of God on Israel's unbelief in apostasy. And now in 705 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah also began to behave terribly in a disobedient manner. And so what happened? God spoke through the prophet Isaiah to them. And he told them, look, you're going to be judged for your behavior. You're going to be in trouble. <laughs> you're going to the woodshed. You're going to, you're, you're going to feel some judgment coming your way. And this is the message of the first 15 verses of Isaiah 28. Um, It's a warning from the prophet Isaiah to the southern kingdom of Judah that they are going to receive the same kind of judgment that the kingdom in the north received. 
Now look at some of the problems that Isaiah saw. In verse 7 of Isaiah 28, here's what the leaders of Israel, the prophets and the priests, here's how Isaiah found them, basically in a drunken stupor. They weren't doing what they were called to do. It says they also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. In other words, they were drunk. That's no place. That has no place in the life of any leader, especially a spiritual leader. So they had failed to really fulfill their function as Israel's leaders because they were drunk. Verse 7 continues, The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. And he, it gets so bad. Look at verse, this is kind of gross, but in verse 8, he says, For all the tables are full of filthy vomit. That's how bad it got. With no space left. So Isaiah finds the leaders of Israel at this party in a drunken stupor, having vomited all over the table. And so he unloads on them a message of rebuke and judgment from God. And look at the reaction. In verse 9, they, they mock him, they scorn him, they, 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 they deride God's prophet. In verse 9 it says, To whom will he teach knowledge? They're answering back to the prophet. And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast. In other words, what are they saying? They're saying, who is this guy thinking he could teach us? Maybe he could teach babies. That's what they're saying. Why? It tells us in verse 10, because he goes on and on and on. He keeps on repeating the same thing over and over. For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a later. They're just going, I don't want to hear it anymore. We're not going to listen to you. Isaiah must think we're total infants, we're total babies, because he keeps on repeating the same stuff over and over and over again. And so what do they do? They mock him. They don't listen to him. They mock him. They don't appreciate his attitude. They begin to sneer him, and they call his teaching simple and childish. And he tried. He tried the best he could to teach him over and over and over again, but they just wouldn't hear it. And in verse 11 and 12, Isaiah finally speaks for God. It's like God is speaking directly through the prophet Isaiah. And here's what God has to say about his people. Verse 11, For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. This people is Israel. Verse 12, To whom he has said, This is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. In other words, God tells them, you know what? You wouldn't hear the simple, repeated, childlike message of Isaiah. So now I'm going to talk to you in a language that you will not understand. And he was referring to the babbling Babylonians who had already surrounded and encompassed their city. Who would take them out of their land, destroy them, slaughter them, and burn them. It was the judgment of God. It was a sign of the judgment of God. And when they began to hear the unintelligible language of the Babylonians, they knew that the judgment of God had fallen. God used it as a sign. Also in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 49, I'll just read this. We're not going to go over this, but this is Moses giving the same kind of warning. He says, The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language 
you do not understand. That possibly could have reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So God warned them of the strange language would mean when they hear the strange language, there's going to be judgment. In the 18th or the, the 8th century, God warned them through the prophet Isaiah when they heard a strange language, there would be judgment. Even in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 15, Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not understand. You do not know. You can't understand what they say. So in the Old Testament, then, God clearly pointed out to the people of Israel when there was going to be judgment through hearing a language they did not know as a sign. But it also speaks of this in the New Testament as well. Um, Paul is basically quoting this, Isaiah 28, in 1 Corinthians 14. And so he's saying, really, you know, just as it was with Moses, just as it was with Isaiah and Jeremiah, those languages are a sign to the unbeliever that God is about to act in judgment. What did it mean for the, the Corinthian church? Well, when they began to speak those languages on the day of Pentecost, every Jew would have known that the judgment of God was coming. And guess what? It was. In AD 70, the Roman Empire came in and wiped out Jerusalem. The sacrificial system of Judaism, which ceased when the temple was destroyed, has never been restored. It's wiped out. They should have known the judgment of God was going to fall. If the judgment of God fell on the unbelief and the apostasy of the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., and the judgment of, fell, judgment of God fell on unbelief and apostasy in the southern kingdom in 586 B.C., then it seems to me that God's judgment would certainly fall on a nation who turned its back on God and crucified its own Messiah in the first century. And guess what? It did. It also seems that once the destruction of Jerusalem came in A.D. 70, the whole purpose of the gift of tongues as a gift had ceased. The gift of tongues was never intended to be something for a Christian. That's what 1 Corinthians 14.22 says. It's not a sign to those who believe, but it's a sign to those who do not believe. The gift of tongues was for a Jew who didn't believe so that he might know that God was going to act in judgment. And we, we see this proclaimed throughout the New Testament. Judgment is coming. Jesus says this. Luke 21.20 is presented through the, the, the book of Acts continuously. In Acts 2, chapters 8, 10, 19, it's the same idea. But it wasn't only a sign for cursing. It was a sign of God's blessing as well. Remember I said it was threefold. So when tongues occurred at Pentecost, the message to the Jews was, hey, God's 
not going to work exclusively through one nation anymore. Before this, there was just one people. And now all of a sudden the church was born, and guess what? The church was made up of multiple people. In the Jewish mind, that didn't make sense. And so God used this as a sign of blessing. God's not going to favor one people any longer. Instead, God's going to the world and through the world to build his church. The very fact that all those languages were spoken at Pentecost was really God saying, it's all over for the uniqueness of Israel as far as the gospel's concerned. I brought it to you, you didn't listen, so it's going to everybody now. I'm going to speak in the world's languages, and I'm going to build the church that was hidden in the Old Testament. So tongues speak as a sign of the curse on Israel, but it also speaks of blessing in many ways. And then it also is a sign of authority. Because who were these people who spoke in tongues in the book of Acts? These were men of God. These were men of God who spoke of a curse and the judgment. They were men of God who spoke of the blessing to come on all the nations. These were apostles and prophets upon which the church was built. And it was to them that God gave the ability to speak these languages as a, as a way of authenticating their office, as a validating sign that while these men don't know this language, and they're, they're speaking it supernaturally to us, maybe we should pay attention to them. It was a validating sign that they were, what they were saying was in fact true. And to the Jewish mind, the idea that God would make such a transition would be so shocking. Wait a minute, what do you mean you're, you're, you're setting us kind of aside temporarily here and you're going to take this to everybody else? Aren't we your special people? Now you want us to become part of this organization called the church with Gentiles? You've got to be kidding me. That's, that's the hardest thing for a Jew to process. It's incomprehensible to them. There would have to be some kind of reinforcement that what these men was going, that were, they were saying was true, and it was from God. And God provided this natural, this, this supernatural gift of languages through these prophets and through these apostles to validate them in the, in the minds of their Jewish audience. As a matter of fact, Paul himself in verse 18 says, I thank God that I speak in languages more than all of you. So he had this gift. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, it says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works, one of which was the gift of languages or the gift of tongues. So it's a sign of authority. It's a sign of blessing. It's a sign of, of cursing. A, B, C. All right? And, and we have to be reminded of that. What, what, is the, what is the purpose of a sign? I mean, even if you argue with everything else I've said, you've got to understand that he does say that it is a sign to those that don't believe, right? So what is the purpose of a sign? You know, when, when we drive occasionally down to Los Angeles, all right, you get on I-5, and what do you see? You see a sign, right? It says Los Angeles, however many, whatever, 300 miles, whatever it is. And the closer you get, the, the, the number on the sign gets lower, right? And pretty soon, 50 miles, 20 miles, 
And what happens to the signs when you're in Los Angeles? Do you see a sign in Los Angeles as you, you go around saying you're in Los Angeles? No, you don't see that. Why? Because uh, uh, the purpose of a sign is to point to something that's ahead, right? But once that thing that happens is done, the signs cease. When you get to Los Angeles, you don't continue to drive to San Diego and you're driving south on I-5 and you see Los Angeles. You don't see that. Why? Because it was only a sign to get you to that point. It's the same with the purpose of tongues. They pointed ahead to something. But once the destination was reached, once the judgment was proclaimed, it ceased. It's over. They pointed to something, a curse upon Israel. And once the curse came, 70 AD, the sign was no longer necessary. We'll look at verse 22. Because we see here the priority of this prophecy. Verse 22, he says... Thus tongues are assigned not for believers, but for unbelievers. And then he says, while prophecy is a sign, this is very unfortunate in their translation. If you look in your ESV, there's a little number next to the word sign. If you have the King James, it's in italics, or the New American Standard, it's in italics. It means it's not there in the original language. In the Greek, there's no word sign there. When it comes to prophecy. It just. I don't know why they translated it that way. But it's not there. Uh, Tongues were a sign. Pointing to something else. But prophecy is something. In and of itself. It doesn't point to anything. It's not a sign. It's unfortunate that they did that. Because prophecy is not a sign. Prophecy doesn't point to anything. Prophecy is something. Prophesying is that which edifies, that which builds up the church. Uh, Verse 3, all the way back in verse 3, one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, their encouragement, and their consolation. Verse 4, he says, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Verse 1, desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may what? Prophesy. Why? Because tongues isn't going to do anything for you in this area of edification. Absolutely nothing. Even if you use the true gift, it's not going to do anything for you unless you speak the language that you're speaking in. What does it mean to prophesy? Once again, it simply means to proclaim the word of God. So the Corinthian church was characterized by this hysterical, selfish, self-centered, ego-building, confusing worship. And, and Paul's telling him, cut it out. Stop it. The gift of tongues has a specific purpose. For a specific time to accomplish a specific thing. But when you meet together, seek to prophesy, seek to teach the word of God, proclaim the truth. It's far more important than tongues. It's far more important to preach the word. One thing that's interesting, if you think about this, did you ever stop to think about this, realize that there is absolutely no record anywhere in the biblical text of anything ever said by anybody in tongues. Absolutely nothing. Why? Because it was a sign. 
And it was meant to pass away, and it did. It had no lasting value, even in a revelatory sense, had no lasting value. But on the other hand, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, it says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention. See, there's no comparison between something that's a sign and something that's a reality. So tongues are a sign to the unbelieving Jews attached irretrievably to one point in redemptive history. And it had to do with judgment. And they, they, they served well to show that Christianity was not distinctly Jewish, but it was worldwide, hence all the languages that were spoken. And they served to show Israel that they had again rejected God in unbelief and apostasy when they rejected the Messiah. So people say, well, don't you think that the gift of tongues has a purpose today? No. I, 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 I firmly believe this. No, absolutely not. It has no purpose today. Um, because if tongues were around today, legitimately, they would still have the same purpose they always had. And what point would there be in signifying today that God is moving away from Israel to open the gospel to the nations? He did that 2,000 years ago. So it makes no sense. We don't need more information on that. It's already done. So we have the stated purpose of tongues, And this is how he relates it to the assembling, gathering together. Look at verse 23 quickly. He says, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, the legitimate gift of languages, and an outsider or unbeliever enters, will they not say that you are out of your minds? I mean, they would think you're mad. Why? First of all, if the person was a Gentile, he wouldn't understand the sign of tongues, because he's not Jewish. Secondly, if the person was a Jewish unbeliever, the true gift of tongues wouldn't mean anything to him because of the chaotic way in which they were using it. Everybody was doing it at the same time. There was no interpretation going on. And in verse 27, if you jump down, Paul states that when the true gift is used properly, there would only be two or three people at most in the entire church who would speak in tongues. And each one of them, it says, would do it in order, not at the same time. So if an unbeliever came into the Corinthian assembly, they would say, these people are nuts. They've lost their mind. It means frenzy. They're just, they've worked themselves into this frenzy. By the way, Plato used that same word to describe the ecstatic experiences that were involved in pagan worship. <laughs> the same Greek word he used. It's almost like he's saying there's no difference between the temple of Diana and what's going on here in the Corinthian church. Verse 24, it says, But if all prophesy, if all speak the word of God, what happens when you use prophecy in the assembly in the church? Well, if all speak, if all prophesy, and an unbeliever, an outsider enters, what happens? Because they're speaking the word of God, he's convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. 
See, tongues are useless to edify either the church or an individual, and they're useless to evangelize. They were just a pre-evangelism sign to Israel that a curse was coming. So Paul says, you know what, rather than doing that, that's not really going to help anybody, proclaim the word of God. Edify, exhort, consolation, all those. It says he is convicted by all. In other words, he will feel guilty. You know, there's a lot of churches today that say, well, we don't want people to feel guilty. Hey, if you're guilty, I want you to feel guilty <laughs> when you're confronted with the word of God. That's the purpose of the word of God. That's the spirit of God convicting your heart. You do well to pay attention to that conviction. Since he's also judged by all. In other words, there's a verdict that will be rendered because he feels guilty. Well, he is guilty. <laughs> That's the verdict. We're all guilty before the Lord. And his sin will become apparent. It will become unmasked. See, when people are confronted with the word of God, with the gospel of Christ, something spiritually happens. When you're confronted, I'm sure that when you were saved, you were confronted with your sin. You were confronted with Christ's ability to forgive your sin. And as a result, you gave your life to Christ. You said, where else can I go? I, I can't, can't get rid of this sin. Well, Christ paid for your sin. And when you came to understand that, what did you do? You fell down on your face and you worshiped God. You were thankful. And you knew that God was in that place. See, that's, that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that prophecy is over tongues because it builds everybody up. I mean, don't you want our church to be a church that, where people can come to be built up in their faith through the teaching of God's word? I mean, it's easy to manipulate people with music, with lights, with smoke and mirrors and all that kind of stuff. That's not what we're called to do. And I understand sometimes messages convict and, and, and exhort, and, and sometimes it's not pleasant. Well, it's not pleasant on this side of the pulpit either, because i got to go through this before I ever even bring it to you. So, you know, it's convicting my heart as well. And so it's important that as a church we continue to search out what the Bible says. And this isn't a condemnation on the whole charismatic movement. There's a lot of loving people, a lot of people that know the Lord that are caught up in that. And unfortunately, they're just not being taught correctly. They're allowing their emotional experience to overwhelm them to the point where they don't want to hear truth. But that doesn't mean we don't confront and we don't hold people to account. Um, Well, I pray that this was edifying to you this morning. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we ask that you would just um, move and work in a way that only you can in this room, even now. Lord, we, we are totally dependent on your Holy Spirit. We don't want to take the Holy Spirit and put him in a box somewhere and say that he no longer works in, the, in God's people. That's not what we're saying. But he works in the prescribed manner um, that's, that's written out for us in your word. And Lord, we, we pray for each heart that's gathered here. I, I don't know the condition of each one, but you do. Lord, there could very well be unbelievers here this morning. 
Father, I pray that somehow you would take this, this message and use it for your glory in their hearts, in their minds, that you would show them their need of a Savior, that you would show them their own sin, that they would be convicted by the Spirit of God, and that they would be caused to turn and look to Christ, because he's the one, he's the only one that can forgive us of our sin, who paid for our sin in full. There's nothing more that we need to do, we can do, to be saved other than to look to Christ in his sacrifice on Calvary, his victory over sin and death through the resurrection. And Father, when we come to Christ and we cry out and we say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, that's a prayer that you'll hear from a truly repentant heart. And you will change that person. You will... Baptize them into the body of Christ. You will give them the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will give them spiritual gifts to use for the service in your church. And Lord, we pray that if there's any here this morning, that they would cry out to you. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Father, as believers, I pray that we would be balanced in our understanding of this, that we wouldn't be judgmental, but Father, that we would be correct in discerning the word and dividing it correctly. And Lord, we pray for those who are caught up in a lot of this uh, stuff that's going on in the church today. And we pray that you would give them clarity in their thinking. That you would provide teachers for them that are able to point them in the right direction. And Father, we just thank you and we praise you. Pray bless our fellowship time across the way as well. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Let's stand. We'll close with one last word. Or one last song. (laughs) I don't have any more words. (laughs)